Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, if you would please, to the book of Colossians. We'll be returning to our study, uh, walking through this little epistle of Paul. Uh, now this morning we'll be in chapter 2 and we'll actually be covering some verses that we have previously. However, this morning we'll be looking at them in a totally different light than what we did before. Uh, this morning I want to cover the subject matter, coming to the Lord's table, remembering. Coming to the Lord's table, remembering. I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, uh, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Father, we're so grateful for these words that remind us of what we have in and through Christ. Father, we're so grateful that while we were dead in trespasses and sins, You made us alive together with Christ. Lord, thank you for your love for us. And I pray that if there's even one here this morning who has not come to life spiritually, that you would use this text and this service today to draw them to faith in Jesus. Lord, for those who have come to faith in Christ, I pray that what we do here today would be a reminder of what you have accomplished for us. And that we would respond with hearts of gratitude and lives of service. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Pastor and writer and speaker Stuart Briscoe tells about a time in his life when he served in the Marines. As he served in the Marines, he was a member of a special ops team. He was a member of a team of commandos and they specialized in cliff assaults. 
And he says oftentimes at night they would bring their boats right up to the edge of a cliff that was coming up out of the water. And, and they had a commando on board who would, who would shoot a, a large claw that had a rope on the end. He would shoot that up to the top of the cliff and he would pull on it to make sure that the claw had got hooked into something secure. And once feeling that the claw was in something secure, that first man would climb up that steep cliff. And and Stuart Briscoe says some of those guys were absolutely like spiders as they would climb that rock wall. But as they were climbing, there was always the hope. Everybody sort of held their breath and, and hoping that the claw would indeed hold so that first man would not fall to his death. But then once he got to the top, he would make sure that it was secured in something tight. So nobody had to worry about falling. And then Stuart Briscoe said the rest of us would follow by climbing that cliff. And we would do so in full assurance because of the man who had gone before and secured the way. Well, folks, Jesus is the one, when it comes to salvation, Jesus is the one who has gone before and secured the way. Paul has a great deal to say regarding that, regarding the person and the work of Jesus Christ in the book of Colossians. For example, in chapter 1, Paul has reminded us that through Christ, God has rescued us out of the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his own beloved Son. Now, as we come to the Lord's table today, let us do so remembering afresh and anew what it is that God has accomplished for us in and through Jesus Christ. You know, there is a certain remembering, there is a certain reflection that is to take place at a worship service such as this. It's like what we do at anniversaries. We, we remember our anniversaries. We remember special events in our lives. We do the same with birthdays. All of those are times that we remember and we celebrate. Well, folks, that's what the Lord's Supper is. It is a time to remember, to reflect, to celebrate. The Bible tells us that in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he told his disciples to eat. He said in the bread that they were to be reminded of his broken body for their sins. And and in the, the wine or the juice, they were to remember his shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins. And he said, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Remember. Do this in remembrance of me. And so very clearly every time that we come to the Lord's table we are to do so with a certain remembrance. We are to reflect upon the person 
and the work of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us. Folks, I think of the the early Hebrews. In the Passover meal every year, they would remember, as they would eat the Passover, they would remember how God had had uh, sacrificed, they took that sacrificial lamb, they took the blood, they put it over the lintel and the doorpost, and, and the death angel passed over that night. And through the Passover every year, they would remember their deliverance out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. Well, in the same way, Christians come to the Lord's table. And we do so with that same remembrance because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain for us. Well, let's see what these verses say about that. There are three things in this text that Paul points out that we are to be reminded of. First of all, we are to be reminded of the source of of our redemption. Look at verses 8 through 10 once again. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Look again at what he's saying there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or tradition. Now folks, we know that from the dawn of history, man has pondered the questions of ultimate reality. He has sought an explanation for the existence of the universe and the meaning of his own existence. He's asked questions like, why am I here? What is the purpose of life? Where am I going? Is there life after death? Is there more out there? And so the discipline of philosophy came into play and it grew. Now philosophy is a combination of two different words. Phileo meaning to love and Sophia meaning wisdom. And so philosophy is the love of wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom. Now because everybody has a worldview, whether you realize it or not, there is a sense in which all of us are philosophers. But as a formal discipline, it's generally believed that it, that it grew from a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah. There was a man by the name of Thales that is generally credited with with beginning or starting the formal discipline of philosophy. And from his day to our current day, there have been hundreds and even thousands upon thousands of philosophers each bringing his views of the universe and of life to the table. As one writer points out in his commentary on Colossians, it can be quite a frustrating experience to sit in a college philosophy class 
And here men tried to muse and ask questions about the ultimate questions of life and existence from men who do not even know God. As Francis Schaeffer pointed out, man cannot begin with himself and arrive at ultimate reality. Now a Frenchman named Jean-Paul Sartre Uh, uh, Sartre was a leading philosopher in the 20th century. He was an atheist. And one of his writings was a book titled Nausea. Now how about that for a book title? Nausea. And, And in that book he has a main character who says every existing thing is born without reason, goes on living out of weakness and dies by accident. A very pessimistic view. Commenting on Sartre, one writer says, Sartre's atheism states candidly that man is an alien in the universe, unjustified and unjustifiable, absurd in the simple sense that there is no reason sufficient to explain why he or his universe exists. Well, folks, it's easy to see why atheistic philosophies like that have driven men throughout history to a point of despair. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 about that, he said, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing themselves to be wise They became fools. By eliminating God from the equation, modern philosophy has plunged man into a spiritual darkness without a way out. Now with that being the background, it's easy to understand what Paul says here in verse 8. Because of the vanity of human atheistic philosophies, because of the futility of them, Paul says here, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Paul gives a very stern warning there about vain philosophy. Those who have been transferred from Satan's domain to Christ's kingdom are not to allow themselves to turn right around and be enslaved by something else. It's like what Paul says in Galatians 5.1. He says, stand fast therefore in the liberty with which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, in using the word captive here, he's showing how we can become in bondage to systems in the world. You get the picture here of somebody being in handcuffs or behind prison cell walls. 
Paul is talking here about a spiritual captivity that is just as real and just as profound. You see, there's more than one kind of of captivity. There's a physical captivity, but the Bible makes it plain that there is a spiritual captivity in the world through godless atheistic philosophies. And Paul is saying here to get wrapped up in those is nothing more than a dead end. And he goes on to describe it as empty deception. You're not going to find what you're looking for in other words through vain philosophies. And so so don't be captive by them. He goes on to say something else here that we're not to be captive by and that is the traditions of men. That's another thing that can hold men captive. Now obviously not all traditions are bad. For instance in the Old Testament we see that the Jews were to establish some practices and traditions that they were to pass down from generation to generation. I think for instance about the festivals that they were to observe. Now those were God-centered traditions based on God's truth. But then there were other traditions that actually carried men away from God. Jesus chastised the scribes and the Pharisees because he said, you set aside the word of God and you elevate your empty traditions. Then Paul mentions here the elemental spirits of the world. Here's something else he's saying don't be captivated by. And so what he's getting at here is that when you boil all of this down so often, what is it that human philosophy or tradition comes back to? It comes back to man trying to figure things out on his own and man trying to make it to heaven on his own and the Bible is saying it will never happen that way. We need God's revelation. We need more than philosophy. We need more than traditions of men. But now folks, you go around to the various cultures of the world, you look at various tribal religions for instance, and you find idols where men are bowing down to them and you find them trying to make it to heaven on their own. Or through those false sources. It's pretty basic. It's pretty elementary what people around the world try to do. But again, the problem with all of that is it all takes us away from God. Again, as Paul says in Romans 1:22, he says claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now notice by way of contrast in verse 9 though, Paul says in Christ we have the whole fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. Folks, that's one of the greatest statements in the Bible that you'll find out uh, uh, that you'll that you'll that you'll find about Jesus, his person, his nature, his work. In him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. What I want you to see is the contrast Paul is making. The contrast. 
On the one hand, you have these philosophies and you have these traditions that are vain, that are empty, that cannot satisfy, that cannot take you to heaven. But on the other hand, you have the Lord Jesus Christ who is God the Son and the very Son of the living God. And it is Him who is able to forgive you of all of your sins and to give you peace with God. So what are you going to pick? What are you going to choose? That's your options. Jesus Christ is the very Son of God who came in the flesh, died on the cross for your sins and my sins, who is the sacrifice that God Himself put forth for our sin. In other words, Christ and Christ alone is the source of eternal life. In Him you're saved, but not only are you saved through Him, but in Him you are made complete. Now folks, if you're outside of Christ, I don't care how satisfied you might think that you are in your life, but in God's sight you are incomplete. You are not living as God created you to live. If you're outside of Jesus. But in Christ, you become a complete man. And so again, understand what Paul is saying. Make sure that there's no system in the world that takes you captive. Because all of those result in bondage and they do not deliver what they promise. But in Christ, you'll have forgiveness, you'll have peace with God, and you'll have eternal life. Folks, as we come to a time like this, a Lord's Supper service, we're reminded about all of this. We are reminded where the source of our salvation lies. It lies in Christ. It lies in Christ. It does not lie in man. I want to challenge you to do something this week. Read through the Gospels and read through the New Testament letters and find every place that you can find where the sacrifice of Christ is mentioned and what He did on the cross for you. Read those again because I think as you read those and you reread those, just like when we come to the Lord's table, as we do this and we read those passages, we reflect again on on who the source of our salvation is. And if anything, I think it, it should yield a, a heart of gratitude and a life of service. Second thing I want you to see with me. We are reminded of our new standing before God. We are reminded of our new standing before God. Paul says, beginning there in verse 11, he says, In who is the head of all rule and authority? Excuse me. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." 
The Bible talks about the necessity of circumcision. Circumcision was a symbol of the, of the human flesh being cut away so that man would not place his trust in the flesh. But folks, the Bible emphasizes that God is not simply talking about a circumcision of the flesh. What God is looking for is a circumcision of the heart. In Jeremiah, God said, I'm going to remove your heart of stone and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. In Christ, we have this circumcision that is made without hands. It is through the power of the Spirit of the living God. And so in Christ, we have this brand new standing before God whereby the old man has been put to death. Now that doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with the old man. But we're not under the dominion of the old man. We're not under the mastery of sin because now we're, we're under a new master. We have new management. We're under the lordship of Christ. Verse 12 says, we have been buried with him in baptism. Again, that's simply saying that we've died to the old way of life. And he goes on to say here, we've been raised up with Christ. And so a Christian is one who is no longer enslaved to the old desires. He is a new creation in Christ. The resurrected Christ dwells in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And through him we have new life. Verse 13 here, uh, he reemphasizes this newness. Look at what he says here. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. We were spiritually dead to the things of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But in Christ we've been changed. We've been given new life. He goes on here in verse 13 to say also that we have forgiveness. Our sins were a barrier between us and God. But he has forgiven us of our sins. And, and he goes on to describe those sins there as trespasses. Now think of how we use the term trespass. If we trespass, we are somewhere where we should not be. Well, spiritually, that describes us. Spiritually, we have strayed from God's righteous demands and we've gone over into territory where we should not have been. Isaiah 53 says we've all gone our own way. We've chosen a path where we should not be. But in Christ, all of that's been taken care of. Christ bore our sin. He died in our place. Folks, it doesn't matter what you've done. In Christ, you can be forgiven. You can have a new beginning. 
In verse 14, he speaks of an ancient practice that they had. In verse 14, he says, By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He speaks of this ancient practice they had of writing your crimes down and posting them. Not only that, but he refers to it here as a record of death. He's referring here to the Mosaic law. There is a record of debt against us. There's a sheet, a record of debt against us. And what is that record? That record is the law and how we have broken God's law. For instance, I think of the Ten Commands. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and yet we put other things ahead of God. Thou shalt not murder, you shall not covet, you shall not commit adultery. You go through all those ten commandments and the Bible makes it clear that every one of us in some way or another have broken all of the ten commandments because remember Jesus said it's not just a matter of literally breaking the commandment physically but Jesus said it's also a matter of the heart. And so in some way or another we've all broken the commands of God and so there is this record of debt against us there are charges against us and we are guilty but here's this record of charges and he's taken it out of the way he's wiped it clean You see, ink in in ancient times, ink didn't have acid in it and so it wouldn't set into the paper. They would write on parchment or vellum animal skins and the ink without acid, it it would sit more on the top. So later on, somebody could come and and wipe it clean and, and they could have a brand new piece of writing material. Paul is saying in Christ, Here's this record of charges against us. We've broken the commands of God. We've sinned. We've sinned against a holy God. And we are guilty. And the wages of sin is death. But what God has done in Christ, He's wiped that clean. It's like Isaiah 1 says. Our sins were were red like crimson but they've been made white like snow. Amen? That's what he's done by the cross. And we have this whole new standing before God. You could also think of it this way. Think of what a bank does with a promissory note. When the debt is paid, the note is canceled. A note has to be paid by somebody. The note against us was paid by Christ. You see, scholars say there's several analogies here that might might be competing in Paul's thought. There was the the ink that could be wiped away, and that being a symbol of God wiping away our sin. Uh, But also there was a practice when they would take that promissory note and the debt that was owed, when it was canceled out, when it was paid, they would write the words, tetelestai across it, paid in full. What did Jesus say on the cross? Tetelestai. Paid in full. 
And so there at the cross, it's as though all of our sins were posted and nailed to the cross. And God was saying, here is your trespass, but here's how much I love you. And so in my son, all of your debt is going to be paid in full. Tetelestai. Folks, because of that, we, we have a whole new standing before God. You see, you were guilty, and I was guilty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the wages of sin is death. All of us were in that predicament. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. But through Christ, we've been set free. Romans 5.1 says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 8.1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So folks, as we come to the Lord's table, remember that. Remember that through Christ and what is symbolized by the observance of the Lord's Supper, we have a whole new standing before God. He's the source of our salvation, and through Him we have a brand new standing before God. Those who were guilty are set free. Amen. One last thing I want you to see here that we need to be reminded of. We're to be reminded of our victory in Christ. In verse 15 he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Folks, we see that we were in the mess that we were in because of the enemy that we have. From the beginning, Satan came to Adam and Eve and got them to doubt God's word. And through getting them to doubt God's word, Satan tempted them to disobey God and they did. They disobeyed God and they fell into sin. And you and I experience the same thing. Satan tempts us, we fall into sin. Again, we're guilty. And so not only must God deal with our sin, but God also must deal with this enemy that we have. And that's what he did at the cross. The cross looked like failure. It looked like defeat. But there at the cross, not only was Christ bearing our sin, but he was dealing a death blow to the enemy. By dying for sin, he was taking our punishment, satisfying God's righteous demands, but he was also defeating Satan. And so never again can Satan take the sin of a Christian and go before God and use that sin as a reason for that child of God to stay out of heaven. Because all God has to say is, Satan, that debt is paid in full. Satan says, fine, they'll eventually die. God says, fine, I've provided the way for them. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so everything Satan could throw at us, God has dealt with it. 
Where does that leave Satan? Oh, sure, he'll win, a, he'll win a battle from time to time, but the war is already won. Christ has won the war. In ancient times, the Romans, the Roman commanders, when they would defeat an enemy, they would take the soldiers of the defeated country and, and they would bind them hand and foot. They'd chain them together or put them in ropes and they would parade them through the towns. Those soldiers who had been disarmed and chained together were the spoils of war. And what Rome would do, Rome would humiliate its enemies. Well, Paul is saying here that's what God has done in Christ to Satan and all the demonic powers. He has defeated them and he has Put them to open shame, defeating them through the cross. Amen? He's defeated our enemy. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of the source of our salvation, Jesus. It's not human tradition. It's not philosophies. It's nothing we have done. It's Christ and Christ alone. We're reminded of that. We're also reminded of this new standing that we have before God because of Jesus. We're in a standing of peace and no condemnation. And then finally we're reminded that through Christ God has defeated our enemy. Wonderful things that we're reminded of. As we come to the Lord's table. And again what should it do as we reflect on these things? It ought to cause hearts of gratitude. That responds in lives of greater service. In closing this morning. I want to ask you. Have you come to Christ? Have you been saved? Have you been born again? Because you see, what we're about to observe here this morning is for the church. It's for the bride of Christ. It's for believers. If you're not a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, what we're about to do is not for you. Because again, think of what all the Lord's table means. What you need to do first is come to Christ. We're going to go into a time of invitation and I wonder if there's anybody here this morning, young or old, it doesn't matter your age, it's not a matter of age. Young or old, is there anybody here this morning that needs to come forward and say, Pastor, I don't know Jesus, I've never been born again, I need to be saved. I'd love to pray with you. Christians, as we're singing this hymn of invitation and maybe an unbeliever is responding by coming to Christ, I'm going to ask you to respond there in the privacy of your pew by saying, God, help me to remember all of these things, what you've accomplished for me. Lord, help me to be a more grateful person because you have done for me what I could have never done for myself. Without you and without Jesus, without the cross and the empty tomb, I would, I would be in a mess and I would have no hope whatsoever. 
I would be destined for an eternity apart from Christ. Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you. And think about your life, your service. Are you living for him daily? In light of what he has given to you, are you living as a sacrifice to him daily? Are you glorifying him? Or are you still living too much like the world? With your mind and affection on the things of the world. Lord, we thank you for this time as we come to your table. I pray, God, that you would prepare our hearts. That we would celebrate this observance with the right heart, the right attitude, the right response. Lord, cleanse us afresh and anew. Lord, help us to be a very distinct people in the world for you. And that our lives would indeed be a living sacrifice returned to you. Thank you for what you did for us. Lord, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were in the camp of the enemy. And dying in that state, we would have gone into an eternity without you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us and forgiving us. And reconciling us to yourself. May it indeed change the way that we live. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.